Welcome to All Means All. I'm Carolyn O'Hearn. And I'm Sarah Perglosi. We are two inclusive education enthusiasts striving to shift mindsets, challenge the status quo, and open more doors for all students in all settings, all of the time. All right, we are joining you from Orlando, Florida for the final day of ATIA. Today was day three, um, and they did it a little differently. It was a full day instead of just being the half day in the morning. Um, and we we were able to run into a lot of different Michigan educators, so I'm excited to see where this goes with the educators that were here. So I think we had, I think we had represented with 24 that we specifically knew, which was really excited to see as far as um, those in the AT departments of their ISDs. Um, but Sarah, you and I both went to a session about AT in the media and how AT is so prevalent. It's there. It exists in our world. We are immersed in it constantly, but we really don't hear news stories about it or see articles about it. Um, what what did you get out of that session? So one of the things that I, I really reflected on after that session was Sarah Kovac mentioned that when we're considering how we're using social media, we need to share the impact that it can and does have more from a person-centered perspective. So the story is more about the people behind the product or the tool versus the tool that we're talking about. And you and I have talked about that, about advocating and finding a platform for AAC users or users of more general AT so that people can truly understand the impact, the why. And the user panel was up there and they are journalists and editors and you know, with primary mainstream media. I would argue that most of the listeners on this podcast that you and I have access to free social media. So thinking about how can we capitalize on that platform that is accessible to us to share those stories of our students and of our learners and our families so that other people who don't live and breathe and work in the areas that we do can truly understand why assistive technology is not a nice to have, why it is a need to have for so many learners. Uh, Stephen Aquino was also on the panel and he really mentioned that we can't keep siloing accessibility and technology. And you and I talk so often about silos, that there are silos in education. And when he mentioned that, it really made me stop and think that, yes, he's right, that we can't keep these two, um, you know, accessibility and technology in these silos, but that it is a part of everything that we do. And that when we bring this conversation to more mainstream media, to social media, to the newspaper, um, if you're listening, you know, contact your radio station and think about how can we highlight the success stories? How can we highlight why assistive technology is necessary? So rather than just putting up a playground core board, having a conversation, showing it from the student perspective, talking to their families, talking to the students, and helping people understand why this needs to change, why we need to have this conversation. I think it, with it being in the media too, it, it normalizes assistive technology. And just like how Stephen was saying, that you can't separate accessibility and technology because accessibility is built in and those who require the technology that's when it becomes assistive technology it's not just a nice to have it's the need to have and so I think just by 
by having that opportunity to think about who who do we need to hear from really segues nicely into the next session that we went to, which was all about parent perspectives. And I think you and I on this podcast, we we want to showcase those and have a platform for other voices because you and I could talk all day about how it's so good and we need to be cheerleaders and we need to be advocates and we need to do better because we know better. But until we actually sit down and talk to the people who are living this, so our AT users, our AAC users, our parents, our educators who are day in, day out dealing with the stresses of education and making these decisions and trying to be the best teacher they can be for their students. Um, But this session really focused more on the parent perspectives, and I think it highlighted for both you and I how much of an untapped resource that is. And I feel like a broken record saying that parents are an untapped resource because I feel like we said this just a couple episodes ago. But really, without getting the parents together to talk, we don't know what their experiences are. You know, we can imagine that, oh, you have so many therapists and so many doctor appointments and so many things coming at you. That's got to be a lot. But we don't really know their feelings until it comes from them and their, their words that they use. Uh, one of the parents who were reported in this parent panel and this parent perspectives session said, I didn't have fun being my son's mother until I had a way to talk with him. And that just felt so heavy because you think about those early days of having children and just basking in being their mom, being their parent and loving on them and you're talking to them and then they start talking back or cooing back and babbling and I hadn't put myself in those shoes as far as having to recognize that some of these parents have endless doctor's appointments and therapy appointments and the school district coming in from early intervention saying, well, we're recommending this and what do you think the goal should be and here's what we think we should move forward and this is what we should focus on. And just having a lot thrown at you where you can't really enjoy just existing because you're constantly going from one thing to the next thing to the next thing. Before I came to the project that I'm currently in, uh, I was in early intervention for 12 years. And in the first year, year and a half, I would walk in with that speech lens in mind, right? I'm here, we need to get AAC, we need to get communication going, let's go, let's go. And I was hit with a lot of resistance from families and, and not intentional, but what I learned is that when we walk in as, as a human being, when we walk in and we meet those families where they're at and we ask them questions about what is important to them, what feels right, how do they communicate as a family, what are their values, what are their visions and their goals for that student versus imposing my, my self-perceived ideas of what is best, we often found tools that met the student's needs but also really met the family's needs and met where they were, how they communicated, their culture. And I think sometimes, Carolyn, we come in with this idea that we've, you know, we went to school for six years and we've been practicing for 15 years. And so we have all this expertise, but it comes down to at the end of the day, as educators, we will never know students like their families do. And they talked a lot on this user panel about 
not only thinking about what is the family going through, but also thinking what is the student going through? What is this learner experiencing? And one of the parents really mentioned that when early interventionists moved from this fix-it model, right, that we need to fix something, to really thinking about how does this benefit the student? How does this fit into your family? Their quality of life really changed. So moving from that drilling them every day, you need to get them in a stander for X amount of time, and you need to focus on, you know, here are the core vocabulary words we need you to model today and these routines. When we moved away from that drill model and more to how are we engaging? How are we communicating? How are we interacting? The difference that the quality of life was for both the families, but also those students. I completely agree. And I think we touched on this on our previous episode about moving away from mastery because mastery is not what we're aiming for. We're aiming for true, authentic, genuine interaction and reasons to communicate and motivating others to want to communicate rather than forcing them to want to say something or do something. And another parent was saying that they, they finally realized that they, we need to take the pressure off of our students, off of our children to perform using an AAC device once it's introduced or an AT tool or something. When we're saying, Hey, try out this tool, try this. We think it's going to be great. We need to take that pressure off of them to perform. And instead we need to figure out how, how we can use it, how to use it, how to model it and how to incorporate their system so that they can talk and they can engage with others. Uh, that came from Jamie show, who's an SLP. She was one of the, the speakers for this session. And I just, so often we think uh, we, the, the student doesn't know what they're doing or they don't know what they're supposed to be doing or maybe this tool isn't the right tool for them because we're collecting data and constantly moving and trying to be so fast rather than just taking the time to slow down and really connect with the individual who's using the tool, using the device and getting their input and their feedback and just taking that pressure off of if they want to say something, they can, but they definitely don't need to right now. Um, because we as speakers don't always have to speak. And so it would be ridiculous to expect anything different from our non-speakers. One of the things that they mentioned too is this, the need that they felt to have what they called as an AAC quarterback. And this is really someone who can see that long-term vision, right? Someone who doesn't change constantly. They mentioned how often they would have different providers coming in who would suggest different tools or different access methods or different ways of indicating yes, no. And how confusing that is not only for the, their child, but also for them as a family and often not giving their learners time to really get to know it. And one of the parents mentioned she was an English second language teacher and how they often referred to the seven year silent period where we're not really expecting our students to come out and you know speak fluently and engage in activities and do all of these different things, but that we're giving them time to learn the language. And she said she started to mention that in her students in her child's IEP that you know this isn't going to happen tomorrow and that we need patience. And for some of them that that communication quarterback or that AAC quarterback was another parent mentor who had walked that same journey as they had. 
someone who could envision what was going, what that end goal was to understand inclusion, that they had a child that was included, or there was even someone on the parent panel whose daughter was 15 years older um, and had not been included and, and had really been a mentor for that family. And one of the things that they mentioned is how, and I can say this, Carolyn, as an early interventionist, <laughs> I'm guilty of this, but that sometimes when we work with younger students, we're thinking about what they can do right now, right? So what does their access method look like right now versus also keeping in mind the potential of what is yet to come? So they challenged us to really think about the long term and to explore those skills early on so that we can start to build upon them and find more efficient ways for students to access their world later in life. I remember nodding my head with such enthusiasm when they said that because we often take a snapshot of the students, the individuals that we work with and say, this is what you can do. So we're going to give you access to this method of communicating or this method of accessing the smart board or a book or the world around you. And we really do need to slow down and pause and think about what is the end goal? What are we hoping this individual will do? And how can we take those steps to move forward? And I think so often, and I've been saying this for so long, but it was just so great for a parent to say it in the session today, is that we can't appropriately assess cognition without robust communication. And how many times in early intervention are we trying to figure out which program that these individuals, these little students are going to be going into but they don't have a means of communicating. And we're putting them into these self-contained classrooms or self-contained programs or not really, truly, genuinely considering inclusion and the least restrictive environment because they don't have a way to communicate. They don't have a way to show us what they know yet at that moment. Um, and I just remember thinking, oh my gosh, we do this constantly. Um, and that's something that we need, we need to shift from. And even, even our older individuals, right, our 18, our 20-year-olds, those who don't have a means of communication, I feel like are often placed into these severe cognitively impaired classrooms or getting way more supports when in reality if they had a way to communicate we could be reaching them in a different way. They could be interacting in a different way. They might still need a different level of support, but it's not going to be because we don't know what they want, need, think, feel, dream, etc. A lot of that, Carolyn, comes down to communication is the foundation of learning. Communication is the foundation of connection and of existence. And they really advocated for focusing on communication and communication early. And that's something that you and I talk a lot about. It's something that I think we need to continue to challenge each other as educators on, is that it's never too early. There are no prerequisites for robust communication. And we need to collaborate and partner with families with the student or the learner with our other educators or occupational therapists or physical therapists or school psychologists we need to start building 
this team. And that's something that in my next session that I went to um, from the Wayne Risa Assistive Technology Team right here in Michigan, uh, Watt, our lovely ladies uh, presented really about the importance of collaborating and how do we move this work forward? How do we start to build capacity and awareness around assistive technology? And Amber Wade, who is part of the Watt team, uh, mentioned that the stronger that this relationship is, right, the stronger that we build the relationship with our families and our peers and our students, the more that we collaborate, the better the outcomes will be for our learner. Because when we aren't collaborating, when we aren't working together and sharing information from one team to the next, it dramatically impacts the learner. And so it's important for us as educators when we are out in our buildings and we are working with families that we are modeling that collaboration, that we are living and walking the walk of the potential that all of our students have. We have mentioned time and time again that this onus is on us. It is not on our student. And so we need to continue to push and to ask ourselves and to reflect what's next for the student. How can I help support them? What is it that I need to do to help move them forward? I think this really comes back to really, really nicely, honestly, to a quote that was shared earlier from Arthur Chan. Diversity is a fact, equity is a choice, inclusion is an action, belonging is an outcome.